On a cold night in January 2017, five comedians gathered around a table in the back of a dark and cramped restaurant in New York's Greenwich Village. The restaurant sits on a comedy club that often has lines stretching around the block. Many of them weren't planning on performing that night, but had come to hang out at a place they called home, a family dinner around the most important table in American stand-up comedy. The five were convened around this table for what would become one of the most unexpected nights in recent comedy history. Give it up, man, for the legend, Mr. Jerry Seinfeld. For a $14 ticket, the audience of 110 or so people saw back-to-back performances by Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, Amy Schumer, and Aziz Ansari. By the time the MC, John Laster, introduced the final comic of the night, the room was pulsating. I'm about to bring up the last comedian, man. Are you guys, are we having a good time? You guys ready for the last comedian, man? Say hell yeah. Give it up for one of the greatest of all time, Mr. Dave Chappelle. As Dave Chappelle would later put it, the audience at the tiny club saw a billion dollars worth of comedians that night. That evening's gathering may have been spontaneous, but its meeting place was no coincidence. Over the past 40 years, the Comedy Cellar has been a mecca for the most beloved comics of this era. And the restaurant upstairs has fueled the stomachs and minds of the tight-knit comedians who found their home base there. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, we've saved you a seat at that restaurant. I'm Kevin Pang. Stay tuned. Do you love the idea of buying your meat from a trusted butcher shop? Well, Porter Road's got you covered. Porter Road is an online butcher with a mission to fix a broken food system. They work with trusted local farmers who raise animals humanely and on pasture without added hormones or antibiotics. And they deliver straight to your door. Here's co-founder James Peisker. When the larger main meat companies are pushing down on the farmers to maximize profits and to make sure that they're doing everything they can to supply the country with cheap meat, it affects the quality, it affects the animals, and it affects the farmers and the environment that goes along with it. If it's raised better, it tastes better as well. So we started to look at it as a partnership. And how do we build a system that rewards farmers for taking the extra effort? And this commitment pays off. The other night, I grilled a dry-aged ribeye for dinner, and it was a gorgeous piece of steak. They dry-aged their beef for 14 days, which gives the ribeye a supremely beefy flavor. Well-marbled and tender, a real treat for a weeknight family meal. Right now, Porter Road is offering a 15% discount to Proof listeners. Visit porterroad.com proof to bring some of their high-quality cuts home to you. Reporter Stephen Calabria brings us this story. You don't have to have ever been to a comedy club to know that they aren't necessarily known for their food. The safest option is usually unfrozen chicken fingers, which from my experience taste like they were coated in sawdust. 
One club in New York City is rumored to cook its frozen chicken wings on a George Foreman grill. So food is often an afterthought behind clubs' usual moneymakers, which are comedy acts and drinks. But the Olive Tree Cafe and the Comedy Cellar, which we'll henceforth refer to as the OT and the Cellar, are different. This upstairs-downstairs establishment is owned by the same people, and the food that's served upstairs at the OT is also served in the cellar downstairs. As you walk the old floorboards and overlook the dark rows of booths and slate tables at the upstairs OT, sights and smells jump out. Full plates of hummus and baba ganoush, bowls of beef borscht, plates piled high with steaming dark orange chicken wings, and even the occasional New York strip steak. You also feel the history and old-time New Yorkiness as soon as you walk in, with its exposed brick and dimly lit light fixtures, raucous conversations taking place at every table and booth, some of them in several languages at once. Then a side door opens and you slip into a descending stairwell lined with the club's most legendary alums, all of whom have scrawled personalized messages to the club's booker and owner. Off the hall at the bottom of the stairs sits the club, a dank, windowless basement cramped with thick wooden tables and chairs. In the center of the room, facing the door, sits the stage, emblazoned in light during the performances, with the iconic stained glass comedy cellar sign in the background. To reach the only bathroom in either establishment, customers have to walk past the front of the stage in front of the entire audience. That's how small it is. But while the physical space is noteworthy, it's the people that make this place what it is. Some relationships in these establishments go back to the upstairs restaurant's opening in 1969. The same holds true for relationships between comedians, many of whom have performed at the cellar since the club opened in 1981. For a comedian like Judy Gold, who started at the cellar in 1987, hanging out in the olive tree is like hanging out in your living room. When I walk in the cellar, it is... So familial. I suffer from depression and anxiety, but like I've been there when I'm in a really bad place and it's like, oh, okay, I feel safe. I don't know who's going to be there, but I know that I'm going to sit at a table with someone and I'm going to have a meal or a snack. There is going to be conversation. It is a completely different experience than any other club in the history of the world. If all this talk about comedy clubs isn't your area, don't worry, it wasn't really mine either. In 2014, I was reporting on politics from the Huffington Post's Washington, D.C. Bureau and pitched a feature about the Comedy Cellar. I'd heard of the Cellar years before and had seen it on TV, but had never been there. I'd always thought of it as a far-off, idealized comedy wonderland that couldn't possibly exist in the real world. When I arrived at the olive tree, I expected to speak with the owner for a few minutes and then leave. We wound up talking for almost three hours, after which I interviewed some comedians at the comedian's table at the OT upstairs. The story was published the following week, and when I later moved back to New York, the owner invited me down to the restaurant regularly just to hang out. Within a year, I was producing ongoing podcasts and live events for the club and a few of the comedians. It behooved me to become familiar with as much of the seller's family and history as I could, silently collecting stories about comedians, staff, and so-called civilians. That's what comedians call non-comedians. I had to navigate relationships that often stretched back 30-plus years while not stepping on any toes or drawing undue attention. I also had to take great care in not bothering comedians. 
They're outsiders looking in, as comedian Dove Davidoff puts it, and they value their space. But if comedians are outsiders looking in, my role became that of an outsider among outsiders. It's the perfect environment in which to be a fly on the wall because there is nothing like working with professional comedians. It spoils you. They're more honest, funny, intelligent, observant, and direct than anyone around your standard cubicle. And as far as the seller goes, it's like the sitcom Cheers, but with people who are professionally funny. Everyone knows your name, everyone is ready with a one-liner, and if you have something to contribute, they'll want you to share it. So how did this comedy club and the restaurant above it come to hold such a heightened reputation? We begin with the OT and the seller's current owner, Noam Dwarman. My name is Noam Dwarman, the owner of the Comedy Cellar in Manhattan. The cellar and the OT sit on the vibrant and bustling McDougal Street in New York City's west side. Greenwich Village, or The Village, has been a mainstay for artists and creative types stretching back to the 1950s, with McDougal Street as its epicenter. At that time, the area was one of the few places where New Yorkers could enjoy much of a nightlife. The Village was one of the only entertainment districts like places like the Meatpacking District, the East Village, Williamsburg. There's so many neighborhoods uh, that are uh, bustling in Manhattan now, which didn't actually really exist back then. Walking down McDougal Street at that time, you'd find the quintessentially narrow, gritty, countercultural New York street. Dozens of multicolored neon signs stretching for blocks, coffee shops, burlesque shows, folk musicians, beat poets, and bohemians, all mingling with the smell of cocktails and reefer cigarettes. While the use of the downstairs venue where the cellar is today has changed over time, the upstairs OT has always been a variation on a bar or restaurant. In the 1950s, the upstairs was a lesbian bar called Swing Rendezvous. Then, in 1969, a plucky, argumentative, and entrepreneurial Israeli immigrant named Manny Dwarman bought the place and opened the Olive Tree restaurant. Manny, by the way, is Noam's father. Manny was an accomplished musician and coffee shop owner by the time he opened the OT. It seemed unlikely that someone like him would have ever considered opening a comedy club, and for good reason. Stand-up comedy as we know it today was still in its infancy in the 60s and throughout the 70s. And because stand-up comedy had yet to go fully mainstream, few, if any, venues nationwide specialized exclusively in stand-up. Comedy clubs didn't start out as comedy clubs. So the the improv and Catch a Rising Star, these were um, clubs which became comedy clubs over time. And then in the 80s, early 80s, late 70s, comedy became a big thing. From the earliest days of the OT and its music scene, Manny emphasized quality. He used to have the waitresses to taste the food before they opened the place because um, he wanted to make sure that, you know, they would prepare the food a couple hours before we opened. And um, it was part of quality control. They would be sloppy about it. And so the waitresses would have to test the hummus, test the falafel, whatever it is, and call him and say that they tasted it before we could open. But of course, you know, that sounds good in theory, but they'd be afraid to tell the truth because the cooks are there. So most of the time they would probably rubber stamp it anyway, even when it wasn't good. But um, but then if it wasn't good, he'd come down and scream at the waitress, you told me it was good. The laughter you hear in the back is from Juanita, a former waitress at the OT. We'll get to her story later. The 1970s passed with the restaurant's basement featuring rotating musical acts. 
By the 80s, the basement was a Brazilian piano bar called City Lights, which featured piano and guitar players. Then in 1981, Manny received an unexpected visit from a young stand-up comedian. Bill Grunfest here, founder of The Comedy Cellar. Bill Grunfest was something of an entrepreneur himself, having already started a comedy room uptown. He learned that there wasn't a comedy club downtown, and so he scouted several locations throughout the village, particularly along the gritty and bohemian McDougal Street. Bill knew he'd found his spot. I walked into the, the space that was then City Lights, and I saw the future. In that moment, it was one of those moments where the trumpets blare and the angels sing and the, the, the curtains open. I saw the whole thing in that flash of moment. It was the quintessential Greenwich Village comedy club. Brick wall, low ceilings, uh, mahogany, wood, uh, cramped, stained glass. If you'd written it, people would go, yeah, it's a little too on the nose. But I saw right away, oh my God, the laughs in this room are going to bounce. Then came the crucial part for Bill, convincing the owner of the joint to host stand-up comedy at a piano bar. Bill walked into the OT, his reviews from his uptown club in his briefcase, and asked to speak with the owner. Manny was around, so Bill said he was interested in bringing comedy to the downstairs room. Manny replied, well, we have the piano bar downstairs, which really starts to heat up around 10 o'clock. Bill saw his opening. I said, okay, what I'd like to do is I'd like to start comedy club in that room at eight o'clock and we'll be out by 10. You won't even know we're there. You sell food and beverage. I'll have a cover charge. I'll pay for the comedians. I'll pay to get the audience in. There'll be no risk to you. Will you win a lot? Will you win a little? I don't know, but I know you can't lose. Having nothing to lose is a great position to be in, but a lot was riding on the success of the club for Bill. Bill was starting on a hunch that a comedy club could succeed in the village if it had the right approach in a solid location. To fail would mean that even with such a heavily trafficked area and an accommodating owner, a downtown comedy club may just not be in the cards for Bill. So while Manny may have had nothing to lose, Bill did. The initial years of the OT and cellar weren't easy or particularly lucrative. Still, Manny continued to prioritize the food served upstairs at the OT and now downstairs at the cellar. The restaurant was also unique in that it served, and still serves, high-quality Middle Eastern food, and at a comedy club, no less. The menu options could be linked to Manny's upbringing. His Israeli roots were reflected in the Middle Eastern selections, while his family's Jewish roots were linked to things like the beef borscht. Manny insisted on using his grandmother's recipe, and the OT became known as one of just two spots in the city to serve great borscht. The other was the Russian Tea Room, a ritzy and upscale restaurant just south of Central Park. The restaurant would only just break even in selling the borscht, but Manny saw benefits to having it on the menu. He would tell the manager, they come for the borscht and the rest takes care of itself. Manny was right. In the 1990s, the Russian national soccer team dined at the olive tree and reported to the manager that the borscht reminded them of home. Manny Dorman's emphasis on quality extended to the customer experience. He made sure customers left feeling like they'd gotten their money's worth. Here's Bill Grunfest again. Manny was so devoted to giving people value that 
he'd walk around and if he saw that somebody hadn't finished their meal, he would say, was there something wrong? And the person would go, no, I just had a big lunch, a late lunch. He goes, well, if you're not going to eat it, I'm not going to charge you for it. And he would take it off the bill. Does anybody in New York, have you ever heard of this? Never heard of it. And he did that for one main reason, but there was an ancillary benefit. He did that because that's the way he felt about the product that he was giving people. If you're not going to eat it, I'm not going to charge you for it. The ancillary thing was that person would now tell that story to a thousand people. And he would come back and he would know this is a place that stands behind what they're offering. It wasn't long before the standards of quality in the restaurant upstairs were applied to the comedy cellar downstairs. Bill insisted on paying the comics a bit more than the other clubs so that it would cover their cab ride to the village. He also went out of his way to treat comedians respectfully. According to Bill, the uptown clubs at the time tended to see themselves as doing comics a favor by giving them stage time, and the clubs would maybe throw in a small selection of food or a drink ticket. And, you know, what I said, and Manny agreed with this right away, uh, let's not do that. Let's treat everybody, not like we're doing them a favor, but we like you. We respect what you're doing. Come down, and if you're, you know, a regular, if you're a seller act, come down whenever you want, even if you don't have a spot that night, and order what you want, drink what you want, you know, mikasa sukasa. Rick Crome was an up-and-coming comic when he started performing at the Comedy Cellar in the early 1980s, having moved to New York City from Chicago. I'm Rick Crome, and I'm one of the comedians at the Comedy Cellar, and I have been for 36 years. The Cellar was still in its infancy in the mid-80s, when ticket sales weren't as great as they are today. Depending on the season, the club often didn't have more than 15 people in the audience. That led to the club and its performers having to get creative in attracting customers and audience members. So quite often we'd have to have, at 9 o'clock, if I had nobody in the club, I'd start playing the piano, and the servers would sit down in the middle of the room to pretend they were an audience. Then somebody would peek their head in and I'd invite them, come on in, we're, the show is about to start. And they'd sit down and then the person next to them would stand up and take their order. So. <laughs> For Manny and Bill Grunfest, the booking of the shows came down to who and what offered the best quality to customers. As the booker of the comics, Bill initially looked for people he knew and trusted. Over time, he developed a system that largely continues at the cellar to this day, in which a comic looking to audition at the cellar must be recommended by other comics, or occasionally by non-comics whose comedic tastes the booker trusts. To balance the necessity of the show, how to build a show, and to understand who's a good opener, who's a good closer, who you want to follow, who you don't want to follow somebody with, to understand those nuances, and then also to deal with the political realities because the people who are the mainstays of the club, say in town, they need a certain number of spots. You, you've got to support them. At the same time, you want to bring in, you know, other people on a regular basis. There have been exceptions to the typical booking procedure, which led to exceptional results. 
In the early days of the cellar, the younger and less experienced comics would host occasional open mics on Tuesday nights from midnight to 2 a.m. According to Bill, the typical audience for these shows was around, quote, six non-English-speaking sailors. It was at these open mics that Bill first saw a young John Stewart, the former host of The Daily Show, who at the time was a server at the Mexican restaurant up the street. With so many comics hanging around, it was probably inevitable that young talent with big dreams would form a tight bond with each other. But the burgeoning familial vibe of the cellar and olive tree wasn't reserved for just the comics. As is common in the hospitality industry, the staff became something of a family, too. Hi, this is Juanita, former waitress in the olive tree and comedy cellar. Remember the laughter in Gnome's tape earlier? That was Juanita. Juanita started working at the venue before it became a bona fide comedy institution. In those days, as Rick Crome mentioned, customers were scarce enough that the wait staff would remove their aprons at the start of the show and sit in the audience to make the room look more full. As a result, a server working downstairs at the comedy cellar in those days was unlikely to go home at the end of a shift with much money. I started in the early 90s, and the restaurant was mostly a, a Middle Eastern restaurant. And then we had comedy downstairs. We used to sit for the first 45 minutes of the show as the audience, the wait staff, so that we lure people into the room. I thought the place was special, not because of the money or anything. We, we all hung out together. We were like each other's second family. I think the restaurant was the base of everything because we all um, rotated between the rooms. As happens in many families, however, there would be the occasional blow-up argument. This was particularly true with two strong-willed people like the owner, Manny, and a server like Juanita, who was then a 19-year-old Puerto Rican girl from Bushwick, Brooklyn. One particularly memorable episode involved the olive tree's slate tables, which you can write on with chalk that's available at every table. Lemon leaves stains on slate tables, and most of the OT's dishes were either made with lemon or had a lemon slice on the side. So at the end of every shift, waitstaff would have to scrub their tables with Brillo pads, which would take a good 30 to 40 minutes. Most waitstaff were in charge of more than one table throughout the course of the night, so you can imagine all the time it took for them to get the lemon stains out. So, um, you know, me being the 19-year-old, uh, you know, want to do things and get out of there really quickly, would throw all of the lemons in the trash before I served it to my customers. And um, that seemed to go well for a couple of days until Manny noticed in the trash a bunch of sliced lemons and started to go around the room and ask each waitress if they knew why the lemons were in the trash. Of course, everybody knew that I was doing it, but no one wanted to rat me out. So when he got to me and said, Juanita, do you know why these lemons are in the trash? And I <laughs> confessed immediately and was like, yeah, I threw them in the trash and I told him why, because I didn't want to scrub the tables at the end of the night. And he fired me. That was like one of the fifth times that he fired me, actually, the lemon story. Someone convinced Manny to hire Juanita back each of those times, and he couldn't have known how fateful those decisions would be. But it was a testament to his and the venue's values that kept the family members coming back, comedians and staff alike. Meanwhile, Bill Grunfest's tenure as the seller's booker and MC lasted until 1990, when he moved on to Los Angeles to pursue a career as a TV writer. That fateful decision ushered in a new era at the Comedy Cellar, which would see the rise of one of American stand-up comedy's most heralded figures, 
who many in the industry call the most feared woman in comedy. When we return, the new era of the olive tree and comedy cellar. Eating food can transport us to different places and times. We're able to explore a new world with just one bite. That's exactly what President of Veroni USA, Marco Veroni, wants for anyone who tries their cured meats. I like to think that when people taste our product, that's the way of having the cheapest trip to Italy. Because uh, tasting our salami, our prosciutto, our mortadella is the real way to discover the taste of Italy. Their careful production process helps preserve the quality of the ingredients and let the authentic flavors shine through. With Veroni's cured meats, no matter where you are, a trip to Italy is just one bite away. OXO product engineer Noah Panalovich wants to make sure OXO's cooking tools exceed your expectations. That's why the engineers go to lengths to make sure the tools add value to your life and make everyday tasks better. We want to make sure that users would only have even better experiences. We want to make sure it could last a really long time, perform consistently over its lifetime. And that's one of the reasons we did so much cycle testing to make sure what we were putting out there was going to meet our customers' expectations. Expect more. Find your tools at OXO.com. Right now, OXO is offering a special discount for proof listeners. Just use the code ATK15 for 15% off on OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. As a podcast host, full-time grad student, and dad, I gotta say, I enjoy a glass of wine or three to unwind. And if you're like me and appreciate a nice libation at home, Naked Wines has you covered. They make it easy to get world-class wines delivered to your home, You'll be supporting winemakers who produce wines exclusive to Naked Wine subscribers. And if you're not completely satisfied, there's a hassle-free money-back guarantee. And believe it or not, home delivery is included. Get started today and save $100 off your first order of $140. A six-bottle case starts at just $39.99. Visit NakedWines.com summerproof and you'll have yourself a glass of your own. Naked Wines from the winemaker to your door. And now, back to our story. No story of the comedy seller would be complete without Esti Adaram, who was seen as something of a badass long before she became the comedy seller's booker. I'm the booker and manager at the comedy seller. Esti was born in Poland and served in the Israeli military from 1968 to 1972. She met Manny Dwarman in the late 70s when her husband was an accordion player in Manny's band. In 1982, Esti started in the comedy cellar as a hostess and worked her way up from there. We had a joke with Manny. Anybody that left or died, I got part of their job. And it grew into what I was doing now. Esty was already intimidating to people for her no-nonsense style. As if that wasn't enough, staff members who worked in the OT at the time compared Esty's looks and demeanor to a younger Sophia Loren, sitting at a table with a long cigarette and a vague glare. 
I myself have felt that glare many times. It's a look that says if you decide to approach, you should get to the point and quick. Otherwise, your very existence is taxing people's patience. The system established by Manny, Bill, and Esty cultivated a rotating stable of talent. The seller's formative years included names like Colin Quinn, Dave Attell, Ray Romano, and Wanda Sykes. Other young comics who would soon rise through the ranks included Dave Chappelle, Sarah Silverman, Chris Rock, Bill Burr, Mitch Hedberg, and Dane Cook, to name just a few. I find them very endearing. I find them very intelligent. Most stand-up comics have an intelligence level higher than the pedestrian. Just thinking first on the feet being on stage. They use their own words. Nobody writes for them. Nobody styles them on the stage. Maybe once they move on or do a bigger venue or event, it's different. But here, it's them. So it's very genuine. As you could imagine, keeping so many talented and off-the-wall people corralled in a club or a restaurant was a challenge. Comedians would wander around upstairs in the olive tree in lieu of a green room, and sometimes they'd take up multiple tables. So Manny hatched a plan with Bill Grunfest. So Manny was saying, is there some way that, you know, we could make them eat all together? I said, ha, what if instead of saying you have to, we say you get to? And we have a table that's just for comics who are seller comics. If you're a civil cut, you get to sit here. And then all of a sudden, just by reframing, I was a psychology major, by reframing from you have to to you get to, oh, now it's an honor. Now I sit back here. and So that's how it actually began. And uh, I will fight certain people who may claim otherwise. Bill's description of how the table started is controversial, as some people credit the comedian Nick DiPaolo with approaching Manny about the idea. Nevertheless, comics and comedy fans from around the world dream of the opportunity to sit in the spot that has hosted so many of their comedy heroes. While the table carries an air of exclusivity, according to Bill, it's just as much a place where comics can meet as equals and look out for each other. One of the takeaways that I got People who drink and eat together on a regular basis become a family. And stand-up comics are, by definition, solopreneurs. They are individual, they're lone wolves. So to see people at the comedian's table, comics that were big and famous and rich, and comics that were decidedly not, all around the same table, sharing food and drink, and then giving each other ideas, support, insight. It's one of those things that I said, you know, I don't know what exactly we created here, but it's not nothing. It's not nothing. Comedians often bonded over the food, with an example being the chicken wings. Noam essentially had to pester his father to get a particular kind of chicken wing, which Noam thought were delicious, but Manny found to be too expensive. He said, F it. And then he started selling the wings of the olive tree, too. And then Seinfeld and Ray Romano and Colin Quinn, they fell in love with these wings. And literally, they would start coming down just for the wings. The wings were a 
an actual influence on the comedy seller, especially for Ray Romano. He even talked about the wings in his, his um, yeah, eulogy at my father's funeral. We used to joke about it because Seinfeld would stack the wings up like perfectly, like a structural, like, you know, like four, then three, like, cause he was so neat and ordered and like some other comedian just be like wings all over the place, you know, and we feel like you could kind of judge them by the way they ate their wings. According to the comedian Rick Chrome, the fact that other clubs didn't have a table reserved just for the comedians made the OT and the seller that much more of a draw for more established comics. It became a magnet. Because the other comedy clubs as well, there was no place to sit. You'd either sit at the stand in the bar area of the improv or Catch Rising Star. But when you could sit down and actually have a meal and talk like a family, that really that really changed the whole spirit of the cellar, I think. P- people really started to look forward to coming in and having a, a falafel and then a, a political discussion or any kind of discussion that would usually end in, in a huge laugh. You know, like heated arguments. You know, I remember sitting there one night, I think it was with Robin Williams and, and Seinfeld. And it, was just, it was just an, an amazing, like, how are we getting these people in our little dicky club? That table. With SD booking the comedians and the club's reputation now firmly established, the late 1990s and early 2000s were something of a boon for the comedy seller and the olive tree. For starters, Jerry Seinfeld filmed his 2002 documentary called Comedian at the Comedy Cellar. Seinfeld at the time was only a few years removed from his world-famous TV show and was one of the biggest stars in America. So while the documentary was not a smash hit, it helped cement the idea of the Comedy Cellar as being a place that attracted big names. 2002 was also the year that the comedian Colin Quinn started hosting the TV show Tough Crowd. Colin by that time was considered a patron saint of the seller's comedy community and had recently wrapped up his tenure as the anchor of Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. Tough Crowd was a roundtable format that featured discussions among comedians on given topics, with most of the panelists being regular comedy seller performers. Food wasn't just a common denominator between comedians. It also forged consequential relationships between the staff. For example... The waitress Juanita would go on to marry the owner Noam. Did food bring us together? Did the olive tree bring us together? Actually, no. Used, yeah, I used to buy her food all the time. Used to buy me food pregnant. from Manetta's. But I would go to Manetta's. Yeah. Yeah, he would buy me dinner every night when I was pregnant and bring it to me. Yeah. Sometimes I have Chinese food delivered, yeah. and and uh, people say, "How could you let your customers see you eating food from another restaurant?" And you're like, "Whatever, you know." But I think that was the first real hint that Noam and I had something going on. Because he kept buying me food. While the cellar at this point had been open for roughly 15 to 20 years, it hadn't escaped its humble roots. Wait staff were still expected to taste the food before their shifts, and every once in a while, when silverware would disappear, they still had to count the silverware when their shifts ended. While business at this time may have picked up, money was still relatively tight. One night in 2002, a rowdy audience member named Donald Trump Jr. was involved in an altercation during a performance. Trump had been asked several times by multiple people nearby to stop being so loud. When he didn't comply, two patrons sitting near Trump each hit him in the face with a beer stein, which reportedly required 28 stitches. There's a whole New York Post article about it. Shortly thereafter, Manny received a phone call from none other than the father of Donald Trump Jr., threatening legal action. 
Many knew he didn't have the money to withstand a Trump lawsuit, so he instead tried to talk the angry caller off the ledge. He mentioned how the perpetrators had been arrested and how he could identify with the father's frustrations since Manny himself had a son. The gambit worked, and Manny avoided a contentious lawsuit that could have imperiled the seller's future. Manny Dwarman owned and operated the Comedy Cellar until his death from cancer in 2003 at the age of 73. Having been the creator of the OT in the cellar's environment, his shoes were all but impossible to fill. So when he left the club to his son, Noam, emphasis was placed on continuity. Very little changed, at least in the first few years. The booker Esty remembers Manny's continued devotion to quality as being an enduring characteristic of both the restaurant and the club. It was a reflection of Manny. And Noam has a lot of the same traits as Manny as far as excellence, quality. It was never about how can we make money, but what is the best quality we can give the money will follow. That was the attitude and that's what Manny was about. It applies to everything. So it certainly applies to food as well. He would never serve a inferior dish or not cooked well dish. He would get very upset if things are not prepared well or cooked well. And Noam does the same thing. To this day, Noam can be seen pouring over plates of hummus to measure their consistency. Throughout the 90s and 2000s, Esty booked a slate of young talent who grew to become some of the most recognizable faces in American comedy, including the likes of Kevin Hart, Amy Schumer, Trevor Noah, Michael Che, and Pete Davidson, to name just a few. The booking process did evolve, however, and is even more selective than it was in the early days when Bill Grunfest booked the room. Comedians looking to perform regularly at the cellar, which is known as passing, must clear a rigorous process by which they get recommended to Esty by a credible source or sources. Passing at the cellar often means a leveling up in terms of how much money a comic makes from comedy. Most aspiring comics start off having day jobs. Getting passed at the cellar gets attention in the comedy industry, which often leads to more gigs, more experience, and could mean even more spots at the cellar. For some comics, it means finally quitting their day jobs. Auditions for a spot at the cellar typically last between two and five minutes, with comics usually coming prepared with their absolute best five minutes of material. Each show opens with the same intro, recorded by none other than Rick Crome, blaring through the speakers. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Comedy Cellar, the best damn When the auditioning comic ultimately steps to the stage, Esty stands in the corner of the room to gauge both the comic's performance and the audience's reaction. Occasionally, she stands in the doorway directly in front of the stage. The stakes for the comic couldn't be higher. With Esty receiving daily recommendations for comics from all over the world, she almost never has time to re-audition comics who don't pass on their first try. Basically, the comic gets one shot, and it's make or break. Here's comedian Joyelle Johnson telling what the experience was like for her. I showed up and I was nervous as hell. I mean, it's only five minutes, but when you're doing something that's like life changing, like a late night set or an audition for the cellar, five minutes feels like you've never done five minutes before in your life. 
So um, I was making sure that I was going to do all of my hits, quote unquote. While Joelle had her hits in hand, she learned that she would have to follow one of the seller's famous drop-ins. For the comic who goes on immediately after the drop-in is left, they have to win the room back while many in the audience are still focused on the mind-blowing experience they just had. That night, the drop-in was Louis C.K. Louis was later accused of sexual misconduct and dropped from several comedy projects and appearances at the time. However, at this point in 2016, Louis was among the most famous and beloved comics in the world. Joyelle said it was an unforgettable event. I rode the wave of excitement in the room, which was nerve-wracking. Essie stood in the back of the room underneath the light, and I made her laugh within about 30 seconds. And the second I made her laugh, I felt a little easier for the rest. Because usually what happens is you'll be nervous until the audience laughs. And I saw her laugh a good two or three times in five minutes, I think. So I was very happy about that. And then we, I got walked upstairs. And we all know about the famous comedy cellar table. And Esty sat down and then she looked me in my eyes and told me to have a seat. And I was, uh, <laughs> I've got a seat at the table. That's what everybody wants, a seat at the table. When chicken wings or hummus is ordered for the table, comics who just arrived may eat from the same plate as the person who inspired them to be there. To sit at the table as a comic is to feel like you finally arrived, like all those sparsely attended bar shows and crummy late-night road gigs and backwoods clubs serving stale chicken fingers have finally paid off. So you can imagine the upheaval that ensued when the comedian's table was moved a few inches. Health department rules changed and you needed more space and there were all kinds of things that made it, the kitchen very difficult to manage. So we needed to um, make the kitchen bigger and we had these architects come in and the only thing I told them was that they cannot move the comedian table. So sure enough, I come in and it's all built and uh, I don't want to say who it is, but someone who worked for me uh, had authorized like a 10-inch movement of the comedian table. The comedians apparently freaked out at the movement of the table. According to an article in The New Yorker, Chris Rock berated Noam by saying, quote, This is not the table where Robin Williams sat. This is not where Ray Romano sat. This is not where Jon Stewart sat, end quote. And the comedian Bill Burr summed it up on a podcast at the time by saying, quote, I don't even feel like it's the same place. Oh I'm saying, you know what this is like? Noam, if you're listening, mm -hmm. it's like when they put the pyramid outside the Louvre in Paris <laughs> and all the Parisians went nuts. Like, yeah. how could you do that? The issue was resolved when the contractor fixed the error and moved the wall, which allowed the club to move the table back. Relationships intact. The uproar over the movement of the table speaks to the now sky-high expectations from the comedians that their home club will always be just how they left it. But on a deeper level, to me, it illustrates the degree to which we as people cherish our communities and our communal rituals. The OT and the cellar were uniquely situated to cater to these feelings among the comedians. As glamorous and alluring as that table may be, you and I will likely never be a part of that family. And that's okay, because in a world that can be so cruel and cutthroat and unforgiving, that family convenes every night in the back of that room over plates of hummus and chicken wings to make our lives just a little bit better. 
When he first got to the cellar in 1981, Bill Grunfest was betting that a comedy club in the West Village would pay off, and it's gone further than both he and Manny could have ever imagined. People in New York wouldn't, couldn't care less about each other in the 80s. And now all of a sudden, they're all together in this basement, eating together, drinking together, listening to a series of people telling funny stories and laughing together. My point is that the importance of getting together with food and drink and stories goes back to the caves and we have just figured out a way to bring it into the 20th and then 21st century. You know, we're not going to be able to get the whole world in there, but I think if we could get the entire world into the comedy cellar, people laughing together and eating together and I don't know, maybe we could solve some of this stuff. Noam and Juanita Dwarman reside in upstate New York and now have three young children. Esti Adaram is now in her 30th year of booking The Comedians and is a continued presence at The Comedians' table. The Comedians' Judy Gold, Rick Crome, and Joyelle Johnson may all be seen performing at the Comedy Cellar and at clubs around the country. And Bill Grunfest went on to a successful career in TV, helping start the hit show Mad About You and subsequently winning a Golden Globe Award. And the food at the Olive Tree? The wings, borscht, hummus, and yes, the lemons, continue to fuel the comedians, staff, and the patrons of the cellar. Many thanks to Stephen Calabria for bringing us this story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm senior producer Caroline Rickert. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by... Matt Poynton. And... Anya Gzeshik. Of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sound's composer theme music. Additional music by Cal Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis. Is our director of post-production, and our line producer is... Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by... Angela Yang. Special thanks to comedians Jim Tews, John Laster, Sherrod Small, Dov Davidoff, Tony Darrow, and Jessica Kerson. The Comedy Cellars manager Steve Fabricant, former cellar managers Mustafa Abelhija and Hassam Gaber, Manning Dwarman's widow Ava Harrell, the Comedy Cellars waitstaff, and all of the people interviewed for this story. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen and... David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors for this season, OXO, Naked Wines, Veroni, and Porter Road. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.